Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse, assault, and suicidal ideation. We advise caution for children under 13. About 15 miles outside of the South Korean capital of Seoul, Reverend Ju Shin stood in front of her small congregation. Dressed in a neat pantsuit, she seemed comfortable and in charge, but the mood was tense as she stepped down from her pulpit. Akju approached one of her male followers in the front row. Two other members flanked him, one on each side, holding his arms. All of a sudden, her gentle facade vanished. She appeared stern, even a little angry. While she didn't speak, the implications were clear. This follower had failed in his spiritual journey. In a fury, Akju wound back and slapped her follower clean across the face. Those in the congregation hardly reacted as the blow landed with a thunderclap. Then there was another. Then another. The righteous hand of God was at work. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we're discussing Reverend Akju Shin and the Grace Road Church, which rose to prominence in South Korea during the late 2000s. We'll explore how Akju first found her calling, the explosive growth of her congregation, and the accusations of torture and abuse that cropped up just years later. Next week, we'll watch as Reverend Akju takes her loyal followers to Fiji to await doomsday amidst unrelenting criticism. The disturbing allegations only got worse from there. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In our lowest moments, we often turn inwards, searching for a glimmer of light in ourselves that we can use to escape all the darkness. For many, that tiny spark leads to religion. Spirituality provides hope, community, and answers to life's greatest questions. But there's a danger in believing that only you hold the key to heaven. Before long, confidence like that can lead you to do nearly anything in the name of salvation. And that's exactly when that little light grows out of control, blinding you to the consequences of your actions. Akju Shin's spark was just starting to catch fire when she first arrived on Korea's spiritual scene in the late 1990s. In a country flush with popular Christian churches, the Reverend offered more of the same. While other, more controversial groups made headlines, from the outside, Akju seemed to cultivate a traditional Christian message. She told her followers that Christ held the key to eternal salvation, and only through God's grace could someone be truly saved. Akju clearly believed in what she was saying, and she knew the church could be a safe haven for those who needed it, as it once had been for her. According to her son Daniel, Akju wasn't always religious. A decade before coming to the church, she led a mostly secular life in South Korea. Back then, she was married with two children, a daughter and a son. To passers-by, the family seemed normal, but behind closed doors, Akju's life was anything but. Her husband was abusive. He routinely belittled her and on more than one occasion physically attacked her. In time, one of Akju's friends picked up on the abuse. They urged her to seek comfort and safety in the church. 
Akju grabbed hold of the lifeline and held on tight. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Many people find answers and relief from their troubles in religion. According to several studies, people coping with trauma experience something known as positive religious reframing. This can cause survivors to recontextualize their past harmful experiences, casting them in a positive light instead. For example, faith may give a person who survived abuse comfort in the belief that they're part of God's divine plan. It's easy to understand why Akju and others are drawn to this kind of message, but recontextualizing can't solve every problem. At times, it only serves as a band-aid. Believing her experiences were part of God's plans didn't give Akju a way out of her abusive home. And while she found some solace in attending church, her husband didn't change his behavior. Instead, he belittled her newfound faith, believing it to be a fairy tale. Eventually, things got so bad at home that Akju went to live at the local church for a time. There, she immersed herself in her newfound faith. Not long afterward, she started working at the church too. And over time, her refuge turned into a calling. She wanted to live a spiritual life, one where she could truly be fulfilled. Despite her husband's constant demeaning comments, she forgave him for his actions. However, it's unclear when or if she ever moved back into the family home. Ultimately, she felt called to serve something greater. According to Akju's biography on a Grace Road Church website, she enrolled in Seoul Theological College, a private Christian institution to pursue a degree in theology. After that, she attended Central Theological University and then Westminster Graduate School of Theology. By the end of her time there, Akju had completely transformed her life. Once she'd received her official ordination as a minister, she bounced around several Christian organizations, including the Durano Theology Research Center. There, she served as a professor and associate dean. The biggest step for Akju came in 1998, however. That year, she became the reverend of Philadelphia Church in Pyeongchang, a city just south of Seoul. Leading the church must have been a great joy. For the next seven years, Akju faithfully served as a senior pastor in the congregation. During that time, her message aligned with most of mainstream Christianity. In a country where 25 to 30 percent of the population identified as some denomination of Christian, her teachings were safe and comforting. It wasn't all roses, though. By 2005, Akju started to feel like something was lacking in her church. She believed her congregation had become stagnant, but not in their numbers. No, in faith. She didn't see her members making the spiritual progress she hoped for. It was as if they weren't being moved by the Word of God, the way she had been. In these moments, it's possible Akju even started questioning herself and her message. Was she really following God's will? Perhaps her thoughts turned to the Gospel of Matthew when Christ promised his disciples that they would become fishers of man. Akju wanted to bring more people to Christ but couldn't figure out how. She needed to make a change. So, in late 2005, as she approached middle age, Akju stepped down from her position at the church, packed up her things, and headed to China for missionary work. Though missionaries were discouraged from entering the country, she didn't seem to have any trouble. She was absolutely determined to find a way out of her funk and lead the masses to God. 
When she wasn't preaching, she opened her Bible and read, trying to bolster her connection with the Lord. She analyzed page after page, desperately searching for a way to reach more people. For the next several years, Akju worked tirelessly across China, converting Koreans living in the country as well as locals. It wasn't until 2008 that she finally made a spiritual breakthrough. After finishing the Bible for an astonishing 30th time, she realized that she, along with the majority of Christians, had been reading the text the wrong way. God's Word wasn't something that could be understood by taking the Bible at face value. Akju came to believe that some verses included veiled references to other passages, linking everything together. She summed up her findings by claiming that one needed to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. While it may sound like some circular logic, it served as Akju's new guiding light, one that reinvigorated everything she knew about her faith. In practice, however, Akju's new system was a bit more mundane. Essentially, it amounted to a hybrid form of numerology, full of tangential and vague connections. To illustrate her unique interpretations, take two Bible verses, for example. Psalm 102, verse 18 reads, This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Akju drew parallels between that passage and Ezekiel 15, verse 5, which reads, Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less, when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it still be made into anything? Did you miss the connection? Most would. But Akju took parts of these verses and Frankenstein them together to get her own message. She highlighted the lines, This will be written for the generation to come, from the first verse, and It is not made into anything, from the second. She interpreted these to mean that God hadn't intended for previous generations to fully understand the Bible. This explained why only now, after 2,000 years, she had figured out how to truly understand the text. And she would make plenty of similar connections from there. As she fell further down the rabbit hole, Akju experienced revelation after revelation. In essence, she saw what she wanted to see, and her discoveries conveniently explained why she hadn't been able to energize her congregation back in Korea. It was an astounding example of confirmation bias. The more Akju researched, the more she realized how far off her previous teachings had been. Apparently, she hadn't been hard enough on her previous congregation. After a little more reflection, she came to believe that most Christians only leaned on Christ in moments of crisis or sin. Instead, they should have been following the path that he'd laid out for them step by step. With this in mind, in spring of 2008, Akju returned to her home country to found a church, one built on her specific reading of the Bible. She called it Grace Road Church, and in just a few short years, it would become one of the most controversial movements in all of South Korea. Coming up, Reverend Doc Ju preaches while members of her new congregation suffer. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when mommy dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. 
a beloved actress who would do anything for her child, a jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge, plus a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 2008, Reverend Akju Shin arrived back in South Korea after several years of missionary work in China. Almost immediately, she started holding lectures around Seoul, spreading her revolutionary new method of interpreting the Bible. Soon, she was tending to a small congregation, known as the Grace Road Church. While she likely only had a few dozen members at first, Akju found more confidence and purpose than she'd had in years. And the more successful she became, the more her message diverged from other mainline Christian denominations. The first big division came in 2009, when Akju first published a book that some Christians viewed as controversial. In it, she dismissed the gift of tongues. She later developed this thought and said that anyone speaking in tongues was actually possessed by a demon. It was a bold statement. Traditionally, speaking in tongues is considered to be a gift from God. Many churches base this idea on 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, which reads, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. However, Akju had her own interpretation of the verse, which came to the exact opposite conclusion. For thousands of years, she argued, the church had mistakenly interpreted these demonic voices as the word of God, all because no one else could understand the Bible the way she did. The issue might sound trivial to many outsiders, but church leaders saw it as a major red flag. Akju was officially stepping beyond the established tenets of Christianity, flying in the face of tradition. The book certainly didn't win Akju many friends in the neighboring churches. According to her teachings, none of the other pastors understood the true word of God. They were all guilty of leading their congregations astray. Akju's tone started to become negative and judgmental toward all of modern Christianity. She worried that innocent believers were completely missing the true glory of God. And eventually, she started to claim that those who weren't receiving the correct messages were all going to hell. According to Akju, only she held the keys to heaven. She was no longer just a humble reverend. She was the world's last hope. And from this, her followers at Grace Road started to believe that Akju was a divine being. Their interpretation was based on her previous experience as a senior pastor at Philadelphia Church. See, the name Philadelphia actually has its origins in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, it's listed as one of the seven churches remaining during the prophesied second coming of Jesus Christ. In many Christian teachings, the Church of Philadelphia is an important part of the end times theology. So church members started to wonder whether Akju was the angel of Philadelphia, mentioned in the book as one who is holy, who is true. And while Akju may not have intended to portray herself as a divine being, we all know what they say about the road to hell. 
Over the next few years, Akju's loyal congregation expanded to over a hundred members. Most of them had an unshakable faith in their reverend and her message. Many sacrificed much of their time to volunteer for the church and supported the cause. With such a strong foundation, it didn't take Akju long to set her sights on expanding even further. In September of 2012, Akju and a few of her members traveled to Queens in New York to establish their first church in the United States. They rented three properties for church members to worship and live in. One of those who accompanied Akju was a 27-year-old named Myung Chung. Myung was a faithful member of the church, along with her fiancé, 39-year-old Sung Pil Yoon. Both of them viewed Akju as the closest thing they had to a divine prophet. So when she made a request, Myung obliged. Some of the details remain unknown, but it appears that Akju asked Myung to bring a close family member to the church. Myung's younger brother, Sun Gik Chung, lived not too far away in Connecticut with his parents. He'd been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and anxiety disorder. As such, he took medications to keep his brain chemistry balanced. But when Myung told the Reverend that, Akchu decided there was a better spiritual solution. She believed Sungik could be cured through God. Not long afterward, Sungik met Myung at the church in Queens. It's unclear why he chose to go, and if he was completely aware of what his sister was planning. But soon after arriving, he realized he'd made a terrible mistake. To heal Sungik, Akju tried to perform a religious cleansing on him. According to him, this meant attending a few of Akju's intense sermons. But what's worse, members of the church took away some of his medications as part of the cleansing, and that made things dire. During his stay with the Grace Road congregation, Sungik started experiencing hallucinations and suicidal thoughts. Either unaware or unconcerned, the church didn't give him back his medication, even when he started trying to harm himself and refused to eat food. It wouldn't have been the first time that faith healing was used to try and cure mental illness. And though faith healers can step up in situations where traditional health care is unavailable, Sun Gik had already received professional help. But as some health professionals have noted, the stigma associated with mental illness can cause even more harm. In this case, Myung and Akju ignored the fact that Sung Gik's illness could already be lived with and managed. Because of this stigma, combined with the beliefs of their church, and their actions caused irrevocable harm. After being subjected to treatment like this for over a week, Sung Gik experienced a psychotic episode. On September 25th, 2012, he somehow left Grace Road Church without anyone noticing. For the next several hours, he aimlessly walked around Queens. It wasn't until later that day that Akju found Sun Gik. But she didn't take him to get help at a hospital. Instead, she brought him back to one of the church buildings. Rather than seeing the flaws in their so-called treatment, members of the church doubled down. They forced Sun Gik to stop taking all of his medication, cold turkey. For the next two weeks, he was forced to sit through sermon after sermon as his mental health suffered. When it was clear that nothing was working, church members took even more extreme measures to get results. In the second week of October, after another outburst, church members, probably Myung and her fiancé Yoon, bound Sung Gik to a chair with duct tape while Akju allegedly supervised. 
It's unclear what hand, if any, Akju had in them. Young and Yun apparently believed in Akju's message, but it's not known if Akju gave them a direct order to tie Sung Gik down. Whatever transpired behind the scenes, the treatment Sung Gik endured proved to be appalling. For the next two days, he sat stuck to the chair, unable to move his arms or legs. As the hours slowly ticked by, the lack of mobility became agonizing. Sun Gik squirmed and strained to be able to move at all. It was no use. Even worse, the congregation ignored his pleas for help. At night, members of the church placed a sock in Sun Gik's mouth to keep him from screaming. With each passing day, the pain increased until Sun Gik's right leg felt like it was on fire. When members of the church finally examined him, Portions of his leg had turned black. The tissue looked necrotic. To help ease the pain, they tried to massage his leg. Remarkably, that didn't grant him much relief. So, unsure of what to do next, the church members untied Sun Gik and took him to a local dermatologist. The doctor was stunned. Sun Gik's injuries were far beyond the scope of their practice. He needed emergency attention. The dermatologist ordered the group to take Sungik to New York Hospital in Queens. When they arrived, medical professionals determined Sungik's right leg had gangrene, a condition where skin tissue dies due to lack of blood flow. If not treated, an infection could spread. Sungik's life was at risk. To save him, his right leg had to be amputated just above the knee. And after seeing his appalling condition, Dr. Angali Baharti, the physician in charge, filed a police report. The next day, October 13, 2012, authorities arrested Myung and her fiancé on charges of assault, reckless endangerment, and unlawful imprisonment. Four days later, the New York Daily News included a brief story about the incident in their pages. Beyond that, however, the story wasn't spread widely. A few months later, Myung and Yoon were convicted of reckless endangerment and sentenced to a year behind bars. While Sun Gik was free of the Grace Road Church, he was forced to live in a facility that gave him 24-7 care. Despite all the trouble, the church didn't face any legal challenges that year. On May 16, 2013, Grace Road Church was officially incorporated in the United States. Akju finally had an international foothold for her organization. After that, her message continued to evolve, becoming even more controversial, and one of the church's new practices, called threshing, would put everyone in the congregation at risk. Coming up, Akju hits members of her church. Now back to the story. By the end of 2013, Reverend Akju Shin of Grace Road Church had weathered her first public controversy, but the troubles continued behind closed doors. By that point, Akju's personal brand of Christianity, if one could call it that, had become increasingly demanding. The Grace Road congregation was expected to follow Akju's interpretation of the Bible to a T. If they didn't, they were doomed to hell. And for the members of Grace Road Church, a spiritual battle was constantly raging in the background. Akju taught that followers who sinned were doing so because they'd been influenced by demons. As their leader, it was Akju's responsibility to make sure her devotees, now around 100 in number, repented for their sins. To do that, she mandated a religious practice called threshing. 
Typically, a member would be called to the head of the room during a church service and either sit or kneel in front of Akju. Then she would publicly admonish them for their supposed sins. In videos posted online, she was seen calling her followers derogatory names or labeling them a demon. Then, supposedly to help spiritually cleanse the sinner, Akju repeatedly struck them. Sometimes she used an open hand, other times a closed fist. On a few occasions, in video footage of the church, Akju appeared to grab a handful of the sinner's hair and aggressively cut it off with scissors. But the message was clear. It wasn't just about the physical pain of the slaps. It was about the social shame of being called in front of an entire congregation and labeled a sinner, a failure. According to the research of Kipling Williams, a professor of social psychology at Purdue, the effects of shunning people like this can be severe. In one interview, he said, Being excluded is painful because it threatens fundamental human needs, such as belonging and self-esteem. Again and again, research has found that strong, harmful reactions are possible even when ostracized by a stranger or for a short amount of time. And after they're excluded like this, people often go to great lengths to try and fit in with the group again. In the case of Grace Road Church, these members would do anything, including enduring the public humiliation, to be spiritually saved. Threshing also bears similarities to a highly controversial form of psychological treatment known as attack therapy. In these sessions, a patient is attacked with their supposed shortcomings in a highly confrontational manner to break down their egos. The therapy's been popular in some rehab programs. However, studies have found the practice can do more harm than good for those with low self-esteem. But for Akju, it may not have just been about spiritually cleansing her followers. The threshing also served as a strong tool to keep the congregation in line. People were reportedly left dazed, sore, and covered in bruises for violating Akju's teachings. It had to have encouraged people to keep certain concerns to themselves. In all likelihood, any questions would have simply been met with a litany of complex Bible verses and oblique interpretations. For example, to try and justify the threshing, Akju used Psalm 3-7, which reads, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. As usual, her interpretation takes a fair bit of reading between the lines. But remember, many in the Grace Road Church firmly believed Akju was a literal angel. So no matter how bizarre her message became, it was taken as gospel. And the further she diverged from mainstream Christianity, the more power she had. After all, she said she was the only one who could correctly interpret the Bible, and her followers suffered for it. By the early 2010s, Akju had a growing congregation of several hundred in all, and the threshing sessions reportedly became a mainstay of her services. On some occasions, a number of members would gather in small meeting rooms to carry out the threshing amongst themselves. Akju created a hierarchy in her church and appointed some members as pastors to delegate the responsibility. In one particularly horrific allegation that circulated in local Christian media, a former member claimed they saw an older man struck hundreds of times. When all was said and done, he could barely walk and had bruises all over his body. Yet the church didn't show any signs of stopping. 
they'd seemingly convinced many of their followers that threshing was a form of tough love. In a response to the coverage of their practices, a spokesperson for the church said that Akju, quote, has biblically rebuked people by publicly reproving them so that they would turn back and no longer sin. Threshing is written throughout the whole Bible. Threshing appealed to a certain group of strict parents. At some point in 2013, a 17-year-old American girl, who we'll call Catherine, was caught smoking cannabis by her parents. That summer, they flew the girl to Korea to spend time with her extended family. There, they hoped that Catherine would be persuaded to get back on what they considered to be the right path, free of drugs. According to Catherine in an interview with The Guardian, two weeks after arriving, her mother took her to Grace Road Church for the weekend. Things seemed off immediately. Catherine and her mother had to share a room with as many as a dozen other women who slept on mats. She also attended Akju's sermons and met plenty of other church members. Things were intense, but she wasn't too concerned at first. It was only a weekend after all. At the end of that period, however, Catherine's mom revealed that they'd be staying for the whole week. Alarm bells were blaring for Catherine, but things got even more odd from there. It's more than likely that she'd seen the church's violent practices by this point, even if she hadn't been subjected to them. Then her one-week stay suddenly became two. By that point, she started to worry that something was terribly wrong. That week, her mom took away Catherine's anti-anxiety medication, along with her phone and iPad. She also made Catherine cut up her own passport. Catherine was there against her will, but there was nothing she could do. She couldn't call for help, and the odds of her walking out unscathed were slim. After discovering that her things were missing, she refused to go to one of the church services. Her act of defiance wouldn't stand. Three members of the church entered her room and took Catherine downstairs by force. They made her sit in the front row for Akju's sermon. During the service, Akju verbally attacked Catherine by calling her evil and telling her she was going to hell. Catherine, in a vulnerable position without her medication, was on the brink of a panic attack. Yet her mother didn't intervene. Catherine had to stay at Grace Road. Finally, an opportunity for escape presented itself. One day while Akju was giving a sermon, Catherine managed to slip out of the church. She made her way to a nearby convenience store and used a phone to call her sister. When her sister finally answered, they said she and her father would come to pick her up, but they couldn't be there right away. It would take a few hours. While Catherine waited at the store for help to arrive, her mom went on the prowl. Eventually, she even came into the store where her daughter was hiding. Catherine ducked out of sight, but her heart beat out of her chest. She knew she was about to be dragged back to the church. But luckily for Catherine, her mother didn't spot her. The next day, Catherine was reunited with the rest of her family. They took her to the U.S. Embassy to get another passport so she could return home. As of 2018, when The Guardian published their article, it was the last time Catherine had seen her mother. The church didn't appear to release a statement after Catherine's escape. It likely wasn't the first time someone had left the church, and it wouldn't be the last. Akju probably expected as much. Not everyone could be saved. But she may have underestimated their resentment. In late 2013, Sun Gik, 
the man who had his leg amputated filed a $6 million lawsuit against Okju and the Grace Road Church. In it, his lawyers outlined exactly what had happened that night in 2012. They accused Okju of causing Sun Gik harm through false imprisonment, intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress, assault, and battery. Eventually, a judge ruled in Sun Gik's favor, awarding him $3,950,000 for his ordeal. And with the lawsuit came damning headlines. Publications like the New York Daily News picked up the story. They reported all the sordid details of the case. The group didn't respond to these accusations, likely deciding their best course of action was to keep quiet and hope the unwanted attention would go away. But the damage was done. Any foothold that Akju may have hoped to make in the United States crumbled away. Now, anytime an interested convert in the U.S. wanted to look up her organization, they would see a slew of disturbing accusations floating around online. Perhaps Akju was nervous because soon afterward she made a big announcement. According to her, the Korean Peninsula would soon be hit with a great famine heralding the end of days mentioned in the Book of Revelation. Many other Christian groups believe that prior to seven years of tribulation, every true believer will be taken up to heaven in an event known as the Rapture. That way they aren't left to endure the end of the world on Earth. Akju's interpretation of these events was different. She taught that the disastrous tribulations would occur before the Rapture. This meant that Okju's church would need to survive hell on earth. To escape the fallout of the predicted famine, Okju claimed her congregation needed to leave Korea for good. They needed to find an oasis, a place where they could thrive and wait for the rapture. Over the next year, Okju made the necessary preparations. By early 2014, she reportedly had as many as 600 followers, most of them in Korea. She told them she'd found the perfect location to wait out Armageddon. They were headed to the island nation of Fiji. In a rush, dozens of members of Grace Road Church quit their jobs and sold their belongings. Surrounded by lush trees and serene beaches, the members of Grace Road Church set about creating their oasis. But while Fiji became their refuge, paradise wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. For some, it would become a nightmare. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode on the Grace Road Church. We'll uncover the church's massive compound in Fiji and the international scandal that threatened the entire movement. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker. With writing assistance by Tara Wells. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Brian Petrus. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. 
every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.